everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. I have here Steph Lieb. He's working with the San Francisco Public Defender's Office, and next month we are honoring him as one of our formerly incarcerated. Welcome to our show, Steph. Thank you so much, David. I'm honored to be here as well. So um, tell us a bit about your story and, and how you got here. Well, I was incarcerated 32 years in CDC, and uh, I was convicted of a first-degree murder. I went to the parole board multiple times during the era when there was a no-parole policy, and I even won relief from the uh, federal court at a time when they were entertaining challenges to the parole board before the Cook decision which basically told the federal courts to stay out of the parole board's business, that there was no federally protected liberty interest in parole. But Judge Claudia Wilkin had basically essentially ordered my release, but that decision was appealed to the Ninth Circuit. This was around 2009, and it took me another four years to get back to the board and be found suitable. And I was fortunate to be paroled on October 30th, 2013. So I'm approaching that anniversary. And how I got to work in the public defender's office was a journey. And, uh, you know, I worked with organizations that helped formerly incarcerated like the Asian Prisoner Support Committee in Oakland. And I'd also found some intern for almost the whole time before I was hired in 2018 by the Public Defender's Office. I had interned with the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies at UC Hastings. And I had found that position through Professor Melissa, Melissa Nelkin, who taught a, cla- a class in mediation and negotiation at San Quentin. And when she found out that I was going home, she offered to help me find employment. But she had spoken about the work of the refugee clinic in establishing a rudimentary legal system in Haiti. 
And because most of my homeboys in prison were refugees from Southeast Asia, I felt that I, I wanted to do this type of work that uh, once I started working for pay, it would be too enticing and I wouldn't find an opportunity to volunteer. So I spent several years working on country conditions reports and doing research under Karen Musilo, Blaine Bookie, and, and other wonderful lawyers at UC Hastings. And they basically taught me how to use the internet, how to do uh, research. So I'm grateful for the experience. I, I interviewed for the public defender's office as a legal assistant, which is essentially a paralegal. And um, my first interview was with uh, Kathy Asada and Jacques Wilson, uh, two people I respect greatly. And, and they pushed me through to the next level where uh, Jeff Adachi, may you rest in peace, and Matt Gonzalez interviewed me. And uh, I was blessed to be hired. And most of my work there has been on post-conviction, first with Jaku Wilson on mostly 1437 cases, which was incredibly rewarding. Um, I actually represented people I had done time with <laughs> who thought they recognized me from the yard. And uh, now with I work with who the best attorney in that office, in my estimation, Danielle Harris, and uh, on the Freedom Project. And we're a small but growing team. And together we've done some uh, really wonderful work, freeing people with life sentences, some with non-life commitments. But uh, for me, it's the, the lifers, some of whom were incarcerated for over 30 years with most of the time spent in the shoe, getting them released. That, that's been, uh, I guess for me, a form of making living amends, which is something that was part of my parole plans. And, uh, you know, I, I look occasionally when I'm feeling slightly discontented, I remind myself where I, I, I've been and uh, having the perspective that I don't wake up in a cell, it makes everything so much brighter. And uh, I actually had my parole date rescinded by the governor when it was granted and uh, Charles Carbone filed a writ on my behalf and won in the Superior Court. And uh, to my surprise, it wasn't appealed and I got to go home. But because my date was taken, I had actually been meeting with uh, an attorney from a clinic at UC Davis, a, a law student who was going to represent me. And I was scheduled for a board hearing. And, and I keep that paper to remind me that I could still be going to the board because I, I'll be out nine, going nine years this October. And there's still, folks that I was on the yard with that are still going to the parole board. So I don't take my freedom for granted.
Um, so I want to kind of backtrack a little bit. And how did you get into the uh, the situation where you ended up, um, you know, uh, with, with the first degree murder? Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I was uh, living in Los Angeles and uh, I was young. I was immature and uh, I didn't have good anger management skills or impulse control. And I, I allowed uh, conflict to escalate to a point where I picked up a knife and I stabbed my victim. Um, and I, I want to emphasize that uh, there's no justification for my acts that my victim's family, they still live with the pain. And being connected now to my family out here, it kind of deepens my understanding of the impact of, of the loss of a loved one. So I know in defense work, in, in the public defender's office, our, our focus is on defense and those who are accused. For me, though, I, I remain cognizant and have a deep awareness of uh, the suffering of victims. And can you also describe like how you got from the point at which you were convicted to the point where you could actually be released? I mean, what was that process like for you? Well, I'm going to speed forward to the day I paroled where they woke me up early to go to receiving and release. And I went there and I was the only life for paroling. It was a bunch of what we call short timers. And you sit in a, a cage, but it's not like the feeling when you first arrive at a prison sitting in a holding cage. And uh, I was really patient and I reminded myself, don't rush this. And, and I really want to be present for it, for everything. And it was a very slow process. Like there was no need for me to, being awoken at like 4.30 in the morning because I didn't leave till about, I imagine, after 8 o'clock. But, you know, you get processed out, get put on a van, and you pass the same yard where I ran laps every day and exercised and walked. And uh, then there's multiple checks. And I remember thinking, this is so easy. This is so easy. What took me so long? What took 32 years? But what took so long for me was uh, I was in prison and I started out in Old Folsom, which is a level four. And my first day on the main line, I saw somebody stabbed to death under, you know, under a bench, bench pressing. And uh, it was such a, a stark environment, like reminded me of a, a medieval castle and, and I remember thinking to myself and I was in my early 20s I'm not going to live long but I, I'm just going to do my time the right way and um, there was no hope for release and from Folsom I went to other prisons I ultimately went was put in administrative segregation on 
charges that were ultimately dropped. And I served about three years in Corcoran shoe. So I, I came out of the shoe with a really uh, bitter attitude towards CDC. And, uh, but I felt like uh, powerless to fight them. Although while I was in, in the hole, I did help people uh, file administrative appeals. I did testify in federal court in Sacramento for the prison law office in a lawsuit about mistreatment of AIDS and handicapped patients, which was part of the reason I was uh, put in the hole was because I was helping someone who worked in, in the clinic address the mistreatment of people with uh, needs for physical therapy that weren't being given to them. When I, when I was in the administrative segregation unit in the California Medical Facility Willis Unit, I saw people missing limbs who weren't given their prostheses. The beds there were concrete slabs. So they had no way of getting off of them and they had bed sores. So when I, I, I was put in an administrative detention cell, which is a, a punishment cell within the hole, which is designed for a stay of only up to 10 days. And it can only be extended if there's appro approval by a chief psychiatrist and the director of corrections. Those were the rules at the time, but they kept me there 51 consecutive days, complete isolation, no property. And uh, fortuitously, there were, the prison law office was conducting a tour and I, I, I correct, you know, you could recognize when you're incarcerated who's CDC and who's a civilian. So I was able to get at them and uh, they took my, my name and my, my cell number and they tried to visit me, but we told I refused to visit, but they wrote to me. And uh, ultimately we met, I met with Millard Murphy and uh, I testified in uh federal court in Sacramento. I was able uh, to help a couple of lifers be, gain acquittals on murder convictions because I'd witnessed contamination of evidence and the provision of favors to inmate informants. So I testified for the defense in their trial. So I became a, an enemy of CDCR while I was in administrative segregation. So they transported me, special transport to Corcoran Shoe. The times when I returned out to court, I was back in Willis Unit. And uh, basically, you know, I, partic I participated in uh, nonviolent protests, like refusing to lock up while we were on the yard. And, uh, you know, ultimately they flew me in an airplane from Nutree Airport in Vacaville to Hanford Airport in Shoe. And they put a lot of stuff, what they call, in my jacket. Your jacket is your prison file. They said I was very assaulted to staff. So I was basically most of my time in Corcoran, I was in not only waist chains, but leg shackles whenever I was uh, escorted. I was there during the era of the gladiator fights and you know, they, they try to put you in provocative situations on yards, but, you know, I, I was blessed that uh, I never had any kind of problems with anybody, you know, and uh, I look back on that now, like my survival, 
you know, I, I have a homeboy I did time with, not in, not in the shoe and Corcoran, but we did a lot of years together in San Quentin. And uh, he lives in San Francisco. And I said, you know, Rico, uh, it, it's just amazing. Like we used to kick it in the chow hall. We worked in the kitchen in San Quentin together. We used to kick it there. And now we're both out here <laughs> kicking it when you're a buena. And, and you know, it, it's just amazing how we survived because uh, the era when I was in prison and, and like today, it was very violent, particularly uh, the shoe. So how I got here, you know, like for me uh, to just be straight up with you, it, it's my higher power. Like I can't attribute it to you know, being uh, extra tough or smart. You know, I, I was the first timer going in and I, I went, came in with no tattoos. I don't have any now. And uh, I was able to program uh, my last year as a Quentin with uh, the Asian and Pacific Islanders, but I was embraced by the Northern Mexicans. Uh, I, I, I sailed with BGF and black Muslims. So I was able to, in a very racialized environment, I was able to transcend those lines. And, and there, you know, a lot of people say it's impossible. Well, it's difficult, but you know, I know it's not impossible. And uh, it's not that I didn't ever have conflicts, but for the most part, uh, I was able to avoid them. And, uh, I mean, just living and breathing, for me, it's a miracle when I really think about it, Dave. Sounds like it. So, I, and, and it sounds almost like a miracle that you were able to land where you did after you got released because so many people struggle after, you know, 32 years. Uh, being incarcerated um and and you were able to i would think uh end up in the perfect place right well i, I want to say this to anybody who has a loved one who's incarcerated who's going to come out hopefully one day if not soon or to anyone who's formerly incarcerated hey it was a struggle for me you know i have a, bro a younger brother who uh works in the financial markets and uh you know, we, we were close. And when I came out, like I talked to him and, and I tell him, I say, hey, the stress out here, <laughs> it, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, and uh, he said, but you, everything you went through, I said, it's real easy in there. It's black and white. You only have a few decisions to make. Like it, it was overwhelming for me. I remember like going with my niece to get her a smoothie in Oakland. And I was all frazzled. I couldn't figure out where the line was. And I'm so sensitive with prison culture, not cutting in front of the line or disrespecting anybody like it was a major thing. I said, no, no, that's not the line. We, they came, they weren't here before us. And uh, just so many, all those kind of adjustments, getting where you know, no matter what you make, unless you're in that top echelon in the Bay, you know, it's, it's tough out here, you know, 
just the rents, the cost of living. So yeah, I'd rather have those problems. You know, I, I'm, I'm grateful for these problems, but it wasn't uh, an immediate type of success. And even to this day, like, I don't take it for granted. That's why, like, you know, there's a part of uh, uneasiness, like being recognized and getting honored because I have homeboys who did life sentences that was so solid in there and for a little while out here and they're back in again as lifers. So I don't take it for granted, you know, and uh, all I could say is that uh, one quality like I will recognize in myself is uh, perseverance. I was part of the Thousand Mile Club in there, and I, I, I completed a few marathons, won one in there. After my time, there were much, much, much faster runners that came along. But uh, running 105 laps around that track, you know, it takes a certain mindset. And, uh, you know, I also was part of the prison yoga project, and I actually attended at least a couple of classes a week. I was invited to the regular class and a veterans class and H unit. So yoga was real helpful in uh, basically learning how to stay in uncomfortable positions and not reacting, which uh, is a real useful skill everywhere. <laughs> I'll bet. And uh, so, I, you know, there, there are things, I had an education in prison you know, and, and it was a good education in, in dealing with uh, difficult situations, difficult people, unreasonable people, not all of them in green, <laughs> but at most. So, you know, a lot of things, I mean, I do encounter things that test my, my patience. You know, I'm human. And a lot of things that people get bothered by are nothing to me, you know? So I wouldn't wish them to go through incarceration, but it, it kind of, uh, I think for most, especially lifers, it, it inures us to a lot of the little vicissitudes and the little discomforts of daily life. So, Talk about some of the things that you've done since you've gotten out. Maybe, you know, highlight a few things that really stand out to you. It's, it's going to be surprising to you what comes to my mind. But uh, for me, it was uh, participating in, in the Oakland Marathon as part of a relay team with uh, the Asian Prison Support Committee. You know, a couple of times running different like five, six mile legs, like the just the the friendship, the fellowship, the the training, and then another year I did the half marathon and and ran the five k with my niece who was like about nine then. So they have a special event called Run the Town and. Just running with my niece, uh, participating uh, with uh, Community Youth Center in San Francisco in, in my first and only Dragon Boat race. 
and training on Lake Mead, you know, doing something new. Um, really, and I've expressed this like to Danielle and, and some folks on, on the Freedom Project team, like the most wonderful part of freedom are things I never thought about in there. Like uh, I came out, I had a five-year-old niece, Eliza. Now I have a two-year-old niece, Eliana. And just seeing the world through their eyes and going to the park with them, playing tag, you know, <laughs> seeing my, my Eliana on, on a balance bike, you know, it, it's just, uh, it takes all kind of stress and anxiety away from me. And uh, I mean, going through this COVID the last uh, two or so years, I remember. Uh, I remember I was, you know, I used to go, you know, the office had a yoga class uh, twice a week. Teachers came in and when it was canceled, sometimes I'd go to a class of yoga to the people on 16th street before that was shut down. And I remember I was trying to go to a class and, and that's when uh, the city announced the shutdown. And it was like reminiscent of when they recall the yard in prison and you know you're going on lockdown <laughs> and they said like you know remember it was two weeks to flatten the curve so i said damn like there's like a lockdown <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and uh in prison if there's a lockdown but like you're a kitchen worker and and, and you're ethnic they call it race if your race is in lockdown you go to work which is nice you know not to be stuck in the cell so I was saying, man, I hope I'm not stuck, you know, <laughs> in the apartment. You know, I, I could get out uh, to work. And uh, but just the, my, my sister was pregnant during that time. And I had to isolate from my family because of this COVID. So. Like that brought back a lot of. Uh, emotions from prison, just the isolation, you, you know, at the peak of this. Yeah. So, so experiencing that again and, and, you know, trying to find the discipline I had in there to build a program, you know, when thing, most everything was shut down. I guess that's what stands out. But as, as far as the work, it's any time that uh, someone goes home. I mean, we've, we've had some really you know, people denied from, by the board like over 10, 12 times. And, uh, I, you know, I, I know the board's never going to let them out because the board has no mercy. You know, it's, it's a gentler kind of board now. They don't call you a liar. They don't disrespect you, but they'll deny you unless you fit their criteria. And there's some folks that, uh, you know, they came in with substance abuse problems. They never got addressed in there. The, the disciplinary history, their inability to articulate insight into their commitment offense to the board satisfaction. You know, you can pretty much tell that they're not going to make it after the board. Some of them in their, in their 70s, even 80s. So when uh, we're able to get them out through resentencing, you know, that, that's, a, that's another miracle. And uh, just giving people an opportunity to experience this freedom 
like I have. And, and I, I talked to Danielle today and there's some clients who just got out and you know, their little warning signs, they might be returning to the gang life. And, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, I said, hey, you can't control anybody else. You know, you gave them a chance. And, and I heard uh, Judge Conroy did a couple of resentencing of lifers who did like 30 years around that range, give them a little lecture before he cut them loose saying, you know, he might have even been in court for some of these where he said, this is the first day of the rest of your life and it's up to you what you do with it. And it might've seemed a little stern, but, but I imagine for the, for the person on the precipice of going home, they just felt relief and those words didn't sting. And, and they might've been a good reminder because uh, although, you know, you know the stats, the recidivism for lifers is, is very low, but there are, if you look at the board hearing schedules, there are hearings for folks that have been, lifers that have been uh, violated. And once you go back in, it's very, very hard to get out again because the board feels that you fooled them. And then uh, the perception on the yard is you had a chance and you blew it. You're making it harder for me to get out now. And I, I can recall when I was in, behind the walls, like certain cases, like uh, the poly class case, you know, Richard Allen Davis, you know, there's a, among a lot of prisoners, there's a resentment. Like you just made it hard for everybody. And, um, you know, now with this uh, new regime, with the DA and a governor with presidential ambitions, you know, it, it, it's starting to tighten up a little as far as uh, resentencing and uh, pardons. I had a, a, a homeboy who, was still in there when I paroled and finally got a date, got paroled to ICE custody. And uh, they put him on a plane to Cambodia a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. he, the governor wouldn't pardon him. And he never, he never spent the day in Cambodia, doesn't speak the language. So things are changing, not for the better. So we're Almost out of time here, but can you describe a little bit what the Freedom Project is? Sure. The, the Freedom Project works on all types and forms of post-conviction relief, whether it's under the various penal codes for resentencing, like now 1172.6, 1170.03, general resentencing, whether it's getting rid of enhancements that are now discretionary and even providing preparation and representation at parole hearings in certain cases. So it's basically about getting people out of prison. And then the other part is through really talented reentry specialists and social workers on our team making sure that they not only could succeed out here, but thrive by getting them placed into housing that's not another form of jail like 1170 Taylor, providing them every resource that we can access for them.
Um, and then one final question, and I got to ask, what was it like working with Jeff Adachi? I could tell you what it was. I, I, I worked with him on jury instructions for one case. So I can't really comment on working with him, which would have been a great honor and privilege, but I could tell you about uh, being interviewed by him. And, uh, you know, I'm not name dropping, but uh, I met with in person, Alan Dershowitz, Gerald Ullman, top lawyers at Friar Margolin, le legends, legends in the legal field, uh, James Brosnahan from uh, Morrison and Forster. And uh, he is the sharpest attorney I ever met. And just a, a quick example, he was asking me about anything creative or innovative I did working in law out here. And I said, yeah, I, I used a duress defense on someone with a DUI cause the cop told them to move the car <laughs> well, and, and then charge them. And he says, do you know the elements of the duress defense? And I did not, but he, he had them at his fingertips. And uh, he was an inc incredibly charismatic, creative individual and uh, you know, it was a loss, of course, first for his family, but also for the public defender's office and the community because he, he was a champion for, for the powerless. Well, I want to thank you, Steph, for, for sharing your story. Uh, it's an incredible story, and I unfortunately feel like in, in the half an hour that we had, uh, we're not doing it justice, but at least people get a little bit of sense for uh, what you've been through and what you're doing. Hey, thank you so much, Dave. You have a wonderful weekend and thank you everybody for listening. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com that's justice for George Powell, all one word, dot com.